When you first enter your <clears throat> career or your, the field that you're going to be pursuing, it is as if you were looking up at a mountain. And the top of that mountain represents the knowledge and experience you need in order to be successful or to achieve something in your field. When you first begin or look up, it seems rather far away and quite intimidating but you begin to learn the rules and the practices and, and develop the skills that are necessary for, you, for your field, and you make your way up this mountain. Your progress might be slow, but as you get higher, you have this sort of better perspective of what your field represents. You have a firmer grasp on reality. But what often happens to people somewhat some, at some point in their career is that the more they know about their field, the more complicated it becomes. All of a sudden, new unforeseen problems uh, arise. Uh, they have to keep up with all kinds of new trends and changes in their field. There's more and more and more information to absorb the further you rise up. And often you have the feeling of being completely overwhelmed by this glut of information and the complexity of your field to the point where you don't really even feel like you're getting this better perspective. Well, masters are people who, because of their intense connection to what they're studying, because of their love for it, they actually learn faster. They learn more intensely than other people. And they generate this kind of momentum where they push past all of those obstacles and they reach the top of this mountain. It could take 10, it could take 20 years. But at the top of that mountain, they have perfect perspective. They can see in all directions. They have a, a real solid grasp on their field. They can, <clears throat> they can make connections between an idea over here and an idea over there that you can't see when you're partway down the mountain because you don't have that kind of perspective. <clears throat> this command of their field is immensely satisfying and is even godlike. And I am saying that this is the highest form of intelligence we humans can achieve. Whether it's Napoleon Bonaparte, Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, it doesn't matter. Friends, part of what I've discovered it means to live a curious life is recognizing the power of cross-pollinization inspiration. And by that, I mean, it's the recognizing that there are tangible, actionable lessons that can be learned by studying people that are outside uh, my field of focus. So for me personally, I love reading books about people that are outside of my specific field of interest because I think, well, if I want to be uh, a category of one myself, it's going to be the pulling in inspiration from people that aren't just like writers and bass players or uh, like finding inspiration from other things that I can bring into what I'm doing and learn from them that will make me completely unique in what it is I'm focusing on right now. So I, I say that all to say that I've been on a massive Robert Green kick uh, over the past few years because I, I don't know, some of the books I read, they do a really good job of presenting information about someone's life and like what happened to them to lead to where they are. And they, it, it, it kind of just oftentimes gets a little too esoteric for me, but what Robert Green does that's different is he breaks down the actionable steps, the things that can be applied cross-interest, cross-focus, cross no matter where you're at in life. He pulls out things that can be gleaned uh, from people that I admire and I respect. And so his books to me have been a borderline addiction. In case you haven't heard of Robert Greene before, uh, he is a New York Times bestselling author of books like 48 Laws of Power. Uh, that was my first introduction to him. By the way, this, this book is so... Uh, this book is so powerful and so extreme in insight. It talks about power that I think it's banned from a few prisons from being read by inmates. Uh, so that book's kind of intense. The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War. But back in like 2013, he released a book called Mastery. And it's so freaking brilliant. And here's why. It's, it's brilliant because when we look at people that are masters 
of their craft or in their field, it's really easy, at least for me, it's really easy for me to look at them and put them on a pedestal. I have to really keep myself in check because I start putting someone on a pedestal and then what naturally happens is this subconscious belief within me of otherness. Well, oh, that's them. They're beyond me. They're just smarter. They, uh, they were in a better circumstance. They just have what it takes. They have something that I don't. But the brilliance of this book, Mastery, is that Robert Greene breaks down the truth that each one of us has within us, the potential to be a master at whatever it is, whatever field we're committing to. And this book simply breaks down the secrets of what it takes to become a master. This morning I was going through uh, some notes I had taken on uh, a speech that Robert Greene had given back uh, like 10 years ago. Uh, he gave an address to the Oxford Union Society uh, talking about mastery. And so I, I'm not, without even rambling, because let me, <laughs> my temptation, to, my, oh, it's so lame, but my natural temptation doing the some of these things where I'm sharing different info is I just, I catch myself wanting to, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about what you're about to listen to. And then maybe afterwards I'll come back and talk about what we talked about and what you just listened to. And we'll listen to me talking about what we just listened to together. <laughs> Screw it. Uh, let's, uh, just, let's just dive into it. I think this is, there's so many freaking gold nuggets in this that I had to share it with you. It's a little bit longer for daily Guinness, but I think it's worth it. All right. Here's Robert Greene addressing the Oxford Union Society on mastery. Culture has all of these myths and mis misconceptions about this form of power. We, we think of it's a function of genetics or high IQ or a larger brain or going to a great university like Oxford. So I decided I was gonna write the book. I was gonna write a book that was gonna connect everything, connect all of the research. And I was gonna debunk all of these, what I think are silly ideas that people have about genius and, and talent. And the method I was going to use to write this book was the following. I was going to read all of the books that are very academic about the science of learning and creativity and about how the brain works and the evolution of the brain. Then I was going to read the biographies of the greatest masters in history, and there were quite a few of them. And then I was also going to interview nine contemporary masters from all different fields, take all of that large amount of research and somehow figure out how to make a book. Now, as I started to write this book, I became more and more excited because everything was sort of falling into place. And I made what I consider three important discoveries, radical discoveries, about the nature of mastery, discovery of where it comes from, the source of it, how you get there, the process that leads to it, and the nature of creative energy and ma or high-level intuition, which is sort of the end game of mastery itself. So tonight, as I'm treating you or pretending that you're my apprentices, I'm going to apprentice you in these three key ideas that I, I discovered. And I'm going to do that through telling you the stories, through taking you inside the brain of three of the, I consider the greatest masters that I profile in this book. So I hope you're ready. Um, so all of my books have kind of iconic figures, like for power it was Machiavelli, for war it was Napoleon. The icon of this book, and to me the greatest master who ever lived, is Leonardo da Vinci. And the thing about Leonardo da Vinci is he's sort of associated with this almost superhuman power. I mean, how else can you explain his achievements except for the fact that he was gifted with some kind of freakish talent? Um, well, in my research and going deeply into him, I found that actually it's not the case at all. He's an extremely human person. His, his power is very um, explicable. And not only that, I believe the story of Leonardo da Vinci is insanely relevant to the year 2012 and to the future that we're all facing. So let me dive right in now to, to a little bit to his story. So da Vinci was born as the illegitimate son of this Florentine, uh, a notary who worked in Florence. And as an illegitimate son, he was not allowed to attend university or, um, or, or pursue any of the noble professions such as medicine or law. 
So he was basically this wild, unschooled child uh, who grew up in this, the town of Vinci. And as this child who was on his own, he would, his most, his favorite thing to do was to wander through the countryside, and he would go in particular to this very um, sort of primitive part of the landscape where there are all of these rock formations and really fast-moving streams and all this wildlife with swans and boars. He was fascinated by this landscape. It was so dramatic. And one day, when he was maybe eight or nine years old, he snuck into his father's office and he stole some paper. And in those days, paper was a very rare commodity. And it just so happened that as a notary, he had a lot of paper. And he took this paper and he went into this wild part of the forest that he was so attracted to. And he started to draw what he saw. He started to draw flowers and animals and streams and the rocks and everything. So he started to draw. Now, you might think, well, well what a big, that's, what's, what's the big deal about that? But really, if, uh, it was an extremely peculiar thing for a young boy to do. Because in those days, the only thing really that people drew were human figures that particularly had a religious significance. To actually draw flowers and plants and landscape and rocks was something nobody did. There was something peculiar already about this boy when he's eight or nine years old. So he starts to do this a lot. And he doesn't have any teachers. He just draws what he sees, and he gets better and better at it. He gets so good that his father sees his drawings, and he's completely impressed. And he gets Leonardo a position as an apprentice in one of the most important studios in Florence with the artist Verrocchio. So this young 14-year-old boy begins his apprenticeship. And in this apprenticeship, he obviously has a lot to learn, and he has to sort of He's, uh, Leonardo is, is sort of a rebel by nature, but he has to learn to, to subsume all of that and, and learn all the various skills. And as it turns out, he is by far the most diligent student in that studio. He takes practice to another extreme. When they have this exercise where they put a, a room full of chairs and they drape um, fabric over it and you have to practice getting the folds of fabric Leonardo would stay after the class and move lights in different places so he could capture the different angles and how the creases might be depicted with different light sources. He had an obsessive personality. As he goes further into this apprenticeship, he starts to initiate his own exercises and experiments. He starts walking through the streets of Florence and drawing the people as they're walking by. And he goes into churches and into brothels and into prisons and drawing people's faces. And finally, he starts to even experiment in the paintings that he's supposed to do for Verrocchio. Back in those days, if you were an apprentice in a studio, the apprentices would draw like the, do like mostly the backgrounds of these paintings. So for instance, on one painting, it was Leonardo's job to paint the flower bed in the front and then this one kneeling angel. And he did something totally peculiar. First of all, he drew that flower bed just as he drew those plants near the town of Vinci in this totally scientific, realistic fashion that nobody painted back in those days. And the other thing he did was with the angel, he decided that he would be the first person to paint realistic angel wings. So he went to the marketplace and he purchased all of these birds and he sat there for hours drawing the wings of the birds. Then he would let the birds go free. And finally he did paint wings that really literally look like they grew out of the back of the angel. Oh, and then after that, of course, now that he, he learned about birds, he kind of became obsessed with birds, and he went in and started studying aviation, which led him to want to learn how to fly, to building a flying machine. His, his mind kind of worked like that. Now, after he leaves Verrocchio's studio, Leonardo continues to be this weirdo. The, the, the path for an artist normally was quite a, a servile one. You were basically a hired hand. Some aristocrat would commission you to do a portrait of, of the mistress or the queen or whomever, and you were sort of at their mercy. And they were notoriously lax in paying you. It was, it was a, a pretty uh, demeaning job at times. And Leonardo hated any kind of of um, rules or, or, or lack of control. So he devised 
a completely novel career path. He decided to immerse himself in the study of engineering, civil and military engineering, in hydraulics, in all sorts of sciences and architecture, um, in painting as well, in sculpture. And basically, if you wanted Leonardo to work for you, you had to hire him as someone who was a part of your court. And he would have almost like a yearly stipend to be part of your court, and then he would do all of these different activities for you. And later on, um, he actually got this position with the Duke of Milan and the King of France. Now, if, we could, if you could go inside of this, this man's brain for a moment, you would see that this is someone with this in, incredible willfulness. Everything he touches, he turns into his, his own thing. And he himself called himself not an artist. He said that he was an inventor. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to constantly invent something new. And in fact, he ended up inventing some incredibly futuristic devices, such as doors that would open and close automatically and a roasting spit that would turn on its own and, and lamps with adjustable intensity, things that were quite astonishing for that day. But he also applied that to his artwork with a in incredibly realistic style that is also very disturbing. Um, a couple days ago, I went to the National Gallery and I saw the one painting of his that really is in England, Virgin and the Rocks. And the moment you enter the room, your eyes are completely drawn to that one painting. It is so different from anything else in the Renaissance. It's, it's so atmospheric and moody and emotional and even disturbing. Um, so you can clearly see that this was somebody different. And the thing about it is, is that it's not this, this comes from the superhuman genius at all. All of that power came from the, a person who simply worked harder, who, who was so obsessed with detail that he put in all, hours that nobody else would think of. And in fact, Leonardo's uh, motto for his life was ostinato rigore, which means relentless rigor. This man had relentless rigor. When he attacked a problem, that was it, and he would spend all of his hours of his life doing that. Now, I think that he, for me, represents the fundamental lesson of mastery and everything else that I, I wrote about. And, and the idea goes as follows. I maintain, or it's not I maintain, it's the truth. Every human being is born unique. Each one of you was born with a DNA and a configuration of your brain that has never happened before in history and will never happen in the future. This uniqueness that you have is manifested in your early years when you're a child by the fact that you're drawn towards <coughs> certain activities. It could be physical activity like a a dance or sports. It could be something more intellectual like, like math or it could be music. Or it could just be as simple as a young boy who's drawn to nature and wants to capture it realistically with a piece of paper. Whatever it is, it's a sign that you are drawn to this thing in a way that's pre-verbal. You can't even explain. And that is the manifestation of your uniqueness. And I compare this uniqueness that each one of you has to a voice that's inside of your head. It's telling you, you should be doing this. You should be doing this. It's what fits you. It's what you're good at. But what happens with all of us as you get older is that voice gets weaker and weaker. You listen to your parents who say you need to be a doctor or a lawyer. You need to worry about making money. Oh, da, 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 da. You listen to peers who are saying, this is a cool job. This is the kind of profession you should be going into. You start thinking in terms of what really matters is I have to be comfortable. I have to look for a position that's comfortable. To the point where you could graduate from college, you could be in your early 20s, and you have no idea who you are. That voice is totally drowned out. And you end up going on a career path that seems right. You're going to make money. It's, it, it's, it's all, everything's figured out. And in your 20s, you can kind of fake your way through it because you're young, you're energetic, you're smart and everything. But what ends up happening as you get older is you're not so engaged with that subject. You're not learning it as deeply as other people. You're not really focusing as much as you can. And by the 40s, something very dangerous can happen. You could be made redundant. Uh, someone else comes along who's younger and cheaper than you. And now you're, you're pretty much screwed because you don't, haven't built up the skills 
that you needed to build up to, to adjust your career. Well, masters like Leonardo are people who hear that voice and they hear it so strongly that they stay true to it throughout the course of their life. You could draw a line from that eight-year-old boy to the 60-year-old, 64-year-old man who's on his deathbed. That doesn't mean that they, go, they take wrong paths, that sometimes the voice goes away a little bit and they try something that doesn't suit them. That happens, but they hear it again, they find their way back to that path, and they continue all the way to the end of their life. What this means, and now I call this your vocation, that voice literally means voice, or your life's task. This was what you were meant to, to, to do in life. It's that seed that was planted at birth in your uniqueness. And it's not just some poetic concept that I'm trying to, to, to fool you with. It's actually very real. Because what happens when you know your life's task and you pursue it, in those early years of entering your field, you are so deeply engaged in it, you're so curious for its own sake that you pay greater attention, you learn faster, you enter what I call the cycle of accelerated returns. When you're excited and you learn something, now the practice becomes more pleasurable and you practice harder. And as you practice harder, it gets more pleasurable and you practice harder and harder and harder until it's like generating a motor and you have a very intense apprenticeship. And by the end of your career or 10 or 20 or 30 years down the line, what you're able to do is so unique, is such a reflection of your individuality that you have realized that seed that was planted at, at your birth. Now, I think the greatest danger that all of you face in your careers, and particularly in this weird world that we're all entering, or that you're entering, I've been in it for a while, is that you're basically gonna be replaceable. That's the fate that most people have. You learn a trade, you learn it well, and you reach a point where somebody younger and cheaper can do what you can do, and you better believe that somebody younger and cheaper will take your place. So the game of life, if it is a game, the end game is to be irreplaceable. You're one of a kind, you're original. There's nobody who can replace you, just as there's nobody who can replace Leonardo da Vinci, there's no one else like Napoleon Bonaparte, there's no one else like Steve Jobs. I know these are huge figures that are, that are larger than life, but even in, on, low, on smaller levels and people I deal with in the business world, I can generally say that if they're masters, there's nobody else that can take their place. And that is the ultimate position of power in this world, and that's what everybody in here should eventually aim at. Um, and the thing about Leonardo that I think is so relevant for now is that what he wanted to do, what was deep inside of him, his spirit, it wasn't one field. He didn't feel like he just wanted to do art. He didn't feel like he wanted to do just science. He wanted to mix all of these things into something that reflected his unique spirit, which is what he wanted to do. That is the fate that you have because you live in this world where with a click of a button, you have access to the kind of information that would take him two or three years to begin to have access to. You have the power now to pursue these many different skills, acquire as many skills as you can in your 20s and combine them in a way that suits you and your uniqueness into some kind of niche, a career path that, that expresses this uniqueness. Now, there's a, a, a quote, um, uh, this French philosopher, Baron de Montesquieu, a political philosopher from the 18th century that I kind of like, and it goes as follows. <clears throat> we have three educations in our life. The first is from our parents, the second is from our schoolmasters, and the third is from the world. And the third education contradicts all that we learn from the first two. And basically, what it means is you go and you learn all of these skills and all these very important things in university, but essentially the years that follow, what I'm going to call your apprenticeship, requires a different way of thinking. The, the rules are completely different. It's not the same. In fact, many of the things that you learn and many of the habits that you learn early in your life are actually the wrong kinds of things that, you, that are gonna help you, that you need in this path towards mastery that I'm drawing. So I call this period your apprenticeship, and it essentially equals 
your 20s, although it can be a little less or a little bit more. It's roughly 10 years, as I said, give or take a couple of years. And to me, the most iconic apprenticeship in, in, in the history, uh, the one that I write about in the book, is that of, of Charles Darwin. So I wanted to ex- talk a little bit about Darwin himself. I'm sorry he went to Cambridge, which isn't cool around here, but still, it's, it's a great story. Um, now, the thing you don't probably know about Darwin is that he was a bad student. This, he did not like school. He didn't like learning by rote. He hated memorizing things. What he loved was going out in the outdoors and hunting and collecting flower specimens and rock specimens and animals and things like that. And he tells the anecdote in his autobiography that I think people in his family, and they made him wonder that maybe young Charles was a little bit, you know, crazy. And it was, he was out one day collecting beetles, and he tore off the bark of a tree, and he saw two amazing beetles that he had never seen before. And he grabbed one with one hand and grabbed one with the other hand. And then he looked and he saw there was a third beetle, one that he had never seen before, but he had no place to put it. So he popped one of the beetles in his mouth and grabbed the other one. And as he popped it into his mouth, it gave off the most noxious, disgusting, acrid thing. And and he he had to spit it out, and he lost all of the beetles. Um, But that's how much he loved things like collecting that he would literally, I mean, who else would do that? Like, think of putting a beetle in their mouth. And I imagine his family, when they heard stories like that, that they they wondered about the son. And his father uh, was a very successful doctor who, after, by the time Charles was 15, he was really seriously concerned. In fact, he yelled at him and said, all you care about is hunting and riding horses, and you're going to be a disgrace to our family. Um, and so the father decided that he would get young Charles to follow in his footsteps and become a doctor. So he sent him to the University of Edinburgh, and it ended up that Charles couldn't stand the sight of blood, so he had to leave medical school. And so the father decided to get him a job as a church uh, vicar. And if, as, a, as a member of the church, he could do all that collecting and be kind of eccentric, and that would be fine. But in order to get that church position, he had to go to a great school. So they sent him to Cambridge. Now, he hated Cambridge, not because it's Cambridge, but because he just didn't like school. And he was getting barely passing grades. The only subject that he did even remotely well in was botany because he liked to collect plant specimens and he got along fairly well with the professor. He did his four years at Cambridge and he, as I said, he barely passed. So that summer that he graduated, he went on a tour of of England doing his hunting and collecting. And when he came back, there was a letter from his professor of botany offering him this position to be an unpaid naturalist on a boat that was sailing around the world. Now, Charles had never thought of doing something like that. It wasn't a career he was thinking of. In fact, his father had found him a very important position within the church. And when he showed the letter to his father, his father was dead set against him doing it. This is going to take several years of your life. I I worked so hard to get you this position. You you can't do it. And Charles basically agreed. But then as he thought about it, he thought, I don't know. I can't. There's something inside of me that is calling me to taking this voyage. I don't know why. Um, It's an unpaid position. It's a risk. But I've got to do it. So he went against the wishes of his father and he took the job. It's, the, the ship is called the HMS Beagle, you might have heard. And basically, he leaves England. And from the moment he leaves England, he feels like he made a horrible mistake. First of all, he's never been on a ship before. So he's throwing up every day, left, right, and center. He has no sea legs. Second of all, um, the crew. He's never been among people like this. He's always grown up in a kind of a upper class environment with students at Cambridge. These are all, you know, hardcore proletariat sailors who are cussing and drinking and have their own style. And he, it's, it's shocking and he feels out of place and he misses his family and he's so depressed. And on top of it, the captain of this ship is this sort of insane man named Robert Fitzroy who's like a a Bible freak, who believes that everything in the Bible is literally true, and young Charles is going to go discover 
evidence of the flood in South America and things like that. It's a little bit crazy. <laughs> so, on top, so he's feeling like he's working for this madman. He's among all these sailors. He's missing his family. He's throwing up. What the hell did he do? But then he realizes there's nothing else. He can't get out of it. He signed a contract, and they left harbor. And also, he, he wants to try and fit in. So he de- decides on the strategy. He's going to act like these sailors and this environment is just like nature. He's going to sit back and he's going to observe them as if they were plant and insect specimens. And he's going to try his hardest to learn the rules of what it's like to be a sailor, which basically means to do your job and don't complain and don't whinge and work harder than anyone else. And he's going to learn how to get along with a captain and feed his ego and talk about the Bible and do all these other things and just manage to fit in and, and be part of the group. So this strategy actually works, and several months later, they arrive in South America. And as he gets off and he walks for his first day in South America, he sees the most insane thing he's ever seen in his life, a group of marching ants, um, like the width of this room, and going back hundreds of yards, and they're moving towards him, and they're devouring every living thing in its path, including these small animals. Um, and, you know, they don't have things like that in England. So he's, he's incredibly excited by what he's seeing in, in South America. But now he's starting to, to panic in another way. He realizes that none of his skills are suited for South America. He, he's learned these sort of how to collect the kinds of specimens and things that you have in England. But the variety of life here is so much more intense that he has to almost basically start over. He has to learn how to identify birds by their sound of their song, by the color of their eggs, by how they take flight and the sound that that makes, on and on and on. And there are hundreds of different bird species, and the same for all the insects and the plants. And to capture some of these animals required skills that he never had before. So instead of complaining or or freaking out, he decides that he's slowly going to transform himself into the best collector. And the thing he realizes is that this was what he was meant to do. This was his life's task because it's not like school. It's not like memorizing things. This is the real world, and it's really exciting. And the better he gets at it, the more fun it is. So slowly, Charles Darwin transforms himself from this sort of impatient young man who hates schooling into this incredibly diligent worker. And as the trip progresses, he starts to amass evidence of something weird going on on this planet. He sees bones in, in, in a hillside uh, that he manages to excavate, and they're of uh, animals that are thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years old, obviously older than anything in the Bible. And so that starts him to question. He's trekking through these mountains. And the other thing about it is he becomes this incredible adventurer, trekking through all parts of South America and living with gauchos. And he has, like, no fear. He's trekking through the mountains of Peru, and he sees all of these marine plants. And he realizes that this high mountain in Peru used to be underwater. How could that have been? That also must have taken hundreds of thousands of years. Finally, at the end of this trip, he arrives at the Galapagos Islands, the story that we all know. And in two weeks, he sees this unbelievable variety of life that so clearly tells a story that fits in with the other things that he had been discovering, the theory that essentially is evolution and later natural selection. It all comes to him at that point, at the age of essentially 26 years old. He returns home. And the first thing that happens when his father sees him is he, he goes, my God, your head looks larger. You're not the son that left here. You, you look completely different. You look serious. It's not, it's not Charles Darwin who left here five years ago. He never ends up leaving England for the rest of his life. He spends the, the next 30 years in, in his country house essentially amassing evidence to prove the theory that he got when he was 26 on the island of Galapagos. Now, the reason I call this an iconic apprenticeship is the following. The goal of your apprenticeship is not to make money. It's not to get fame or to get attention or to get some cushy position with a nice title. The goal of your apprenticeship is to literally transform yourself. 
You enter the apprenticeship as someone who's essentially naive. There's no knock on it. We all do. You're essentially someone who doesn't have the skills that are necessary. You're probably someone who's a little bit impatient. Most young people are. And essentially, you are going to transform all of those qualities into someone who's skilled, who's realistic, who understands the political nature of people, who learns the rules that govern this, this field, and you're going to develop patience and a solid work ethic. I call it reality. This is reality. The reality is, in your field, for hundreds of years, people have been devising ways of success, procedures. These are the practices that have been passed through tradition. If you want, medicine would be an easy example, but it pertains to any field. That amount of rules and procedures represents reality, and you don't have any connection to it when you first enter the field. Your goal is to literally submit in the deepest sense of the word you submit to this reality, you recognize that you're starting over, and you're going to immerse yourself in it so that eventually you're going to be the one who is actually going to rewrite those rules like all masters do. You're going to calm down yourself down, you're going to stanch this natural impatience, this desire for fame and money, you're going to transform yourself into the consummate observer of the rules, and then you're going to be the one that's going to change those rules for good. I say that there are these are the kinds of, of skills that you want. First of all, you don't want to choose that opening field, the first one that you go into, because of money or whatever. You want to choose a place where you have the maximum opportunities to learn. And that's what Darwin did. He could have had this cushy job going into the church, and he could have spent the rest of his life collecting specimens in England, and we would have never heard of him. Instead, he opted for the risky job, in which it ended up he was exposed to such a wide variety of life that he was able to create, I maintain, the greatest discovery in the history of science, which is evolution. The other thing is you want to attack this apprenticeship with a completely open mind. You realize that you don't have the necessary skills and knowledge. So you have no preconceptions and you're open to all experiences and you're going to observe as deeply as possible the people around you. Learn, having the ability to observe people and figure out what they're like and be able to read them, which is, I maintain, a critical part of the apprenticeship, is a lifelong skill. I call it social intelligence. I devoted an entire chapter to it and it's a key element because you could be the most knowledgeable person in your field, but if you don't know how to deal with people, forget it. The other thing is you want to accumulate and learn as many skills as possible. So you want to choose a, a position or a place that offers you the ability to learn all of these different skills. And finally, you want to treat this apprenticeship like an adventure. Obviously, you're not going on a five-year voyage around the world in the, in the 18th 30s, which is a lot different than, than entering the careers that you are. But the sense that your 20s are a time of exploring and experimenting, and it's an adventure. It's not like a job. It's not like I'm rushing to get a job and I'm going to get paid. No, you're exploring. You're figuring out what you want to do. You have this parameter of what, we, of what I call your life's task. It's not this narrow thing. It's a little bit wider than that. And you're going to experiment and, and try four or five different jobs with a sense of this is an exciting experience and I'm accumulating skills. I'm not accumulating money. Now, of all of the fields that would seem to contradict what I'm talking about, I think music would be the one field. How else could you explain someone like a Mozart? He would seem to be someone born with this natural, <clears throat> excuse me, with this genius, with this IQ, with this natural talent for music. And of all of the forms of music, the one that would be the, seem to be the most uh, exemplify this would be jazz, which is so wild and spontaneous and creative. But in fact, um, I profile what I consider the, the greatest jazz artist of our time in the book. And I believe it tells a completely different story where even music fits the path of mastery that I'm talking about. And this master, the final one that I'm gonna to introduce to you, is the, the great jazz artist John Coltrane. Now, 
Coltrane was born to poor parents in North Carolina. They were basically gospel singers in a church. And he had no pronounced love of, of music. He took up the saxophone in high school because he wanted to get in the band, basically. And everybody who heard him in those years said he was a completely unexceptional player of music. But then one day, when he's 16 years old, John Coltrane goes to a club and he hears Charlie Parker, the great jazz artist, perform. And suddenly he's transformed. This man plays the, the alto sax. He plays it as if it's his own voice. There's something, there's this connection, this emotional connection. It's as if you're looking inside Charlie Parker's soul when he's playing. And John Coltrane never even realized that music could sound like that. It's so unbelievable that right then and there he discovers his life's task. He's going to learn to play music like Charlie Parker. But he takes a peculiar path. He enters an apprenticeship of essentially 10 years that I don't think anybody ever has ever done in the history of music or in jazz. Basically, he's going to teach himself. And he starts to practice for eight, 10 hours a day, practicing so long that the reeds of the saxophone are turning red with blood and his family's going crazy and they're trying to get him out of the house. He goes, he teaches himself how to read music and he goes to the public library and he reads the scores of classical composers and he listens to all forms of music. He begins to initiate these exercises that no one had ever created before. And he starts getting into some bands like Dizzy Gillespie's, but he never stays in one band for more than a few months or a year. He seems to want to learn as many different styles of jazz as possible. When it came time for him to, to do a solo, which was sort of the key for any jazz artist, he was not good at all. He was such a pastiche of all these different styles that he learned that he had no, no sense of style and he, and he didn't have any confidence. But what he had done in those 10 years is he had developed the greatest technique in, in saxophone and perhaps in all of jazz that anyone had ever heard. And that technique was so impressive that it got him a job in the Miles Davis Quartet, the most famous quartet of the time in 1956. So now in this quartet, Coltrane slowly develops his own style. He has this kind of lilting rhythm to the way he plays. If you've ever heard his music, it's totally unique. It's kind of this hip-hoppy sort of strange rhythm. And he plays as if he's speaking into the saxophone, almost as if you can hear his voice and it's very breathy. Uh, people, critics would say he didn't play notes. He would create like sheets of sound. After a few years, he leaves Coltrane's quartet and he begins this wild series of experiments where he starts playing Broadway show tunes and East Indian music and Latin music and Negro spiritual music, going from one to the other and then mixing them all together in some weird way. And in 1963, he creates his most famous album, probably the, high, the biggest selling jazz album ever called Love Supreme, that sort of exemplifies this very strange jazz artist where they have these extended numbers and it's very spiritual where he's He's revealing his, his sort of spiritual life, and he's got all these new instruments, etc. Basically, he's the one who spent all of these years learning other people's styles, and now he becomes the leading trendsetter in the history of jazz, and jazz has never been the same after him, and it also had a huge impact on, on rock after that. It was as if you were being transported inside him, and you could feel what he was feeling at that moment. Now... <clears throat> If you look at Coltrane for a moment, it's really kind of interesting on this level. He, he emerges from hearing Charlie Parker, and he decides that he wants to be like that, and he wants to express his, these emotions that he can't express through words. And if, if he had tried at that moment to just simply play the saxophone expressing these emotions, it would have been nonsense. No, it wouldn't have communicated to anybody. It would be just noise. He understood that instead of trying to just express himself, he had to learn and command the basics of jazz. So he learned one technique and mastering it, he could learn another technique, on and on and on. And the more techniques that he learned and the more genres he learned, what happened was he could combine them 
in a completely unique way and bend them to that voice that he felt inside him and personalize this very impersonal process of learning these styles of jazz. Now, what happens is we have this sort of wrong notion of what is creativity because basically what I'm describing to you is a highly creative person. We have these romantic notions that creativity involves being spontaneous and free and natural and that if, to be creative, if it requires so much work and effort, that, doesn't, that, that kind of spoils the effect. But this is not only wrong in a general way, it's also wrong scientifically because that's not how the human brain works. Essentially, the human brain is a dual processing system. Information comes into the brain and we, it is designed to compare and differentiate things that come in. We hear this sound, we associate it with this, or we contrast it with that, and that allows us to respond and be intelligent and rational with this material. That's the brain, it's a dual processing system. The more information that comes into the brain, the more you feed it with experiences, with study, with research, with practice, the more the brain can naturally make all of these associations and connections between this and that. And if you were to look into the side the brain of a chess master or a great jazz artist or uh, somebody who excels at a sport or anything like that, you would see in that brain all of these neural pathways that go off in a million different directions. It's like this rich ecosystem and all of these different pathways can connect up. That is what true creativity is. And musicians, for instance, who don't have all of that experience and don't have all of those years of study and experience, what they end up doing is merely imitating what other people have done or creating noise or just something that seems interesting in the moment but isn't really creative in the long run. So the lesson that I take from, from someone like Coltrane is the following. You enter a career path which you've discovered your life's task, more or less. You found it. You in your apprenticeship and you learn as deeply as you can, observing the rules and the practices, etc. You slowly begin to experiment with these rules. And then you enter a phase in the book that I call the creative active. You've assimilated so much information that the brain awakens naturally with creative energy. It starts to associate things and connect things that had never been connected before because you fed it with all of this stuff. Um, sometimes what happens to people, they leave the apprenticeship phase and they feel like they've learned it all. And they stop this process of feeding the brain experiences and it all kind of dies and they become what I call conventional. I say that children are born with what we call an original mind, which is a creative and a childlike way. And that what happens to people is they get conventional, a conventional mind that goes around in the same grooves. That's what Steve Jobs called it. It's like gro the grooves of a record and you just go around and around and around. This mind that I'm talking about is the dimensional mind. It has vast dimensions that it can explore because you fed it. And when you enter this phase, you want to keep that momentum, learning more, practicing more, experimenting, failing if you want, constantly feeding it with new experiences. And that creativity comes of its own because that's how the brain operates. Um, <coughs> so the, the thing about, the last thing I'd say about Coltrane is it's clearly not genetics that made him a genius. He doesn't come from a musical family. He's not Mozart. He is the most creative musician, I believe, of the 20th century because of the process that he went through, which is a great lesson for all of us. It's that you have this natural creativity, and if you go through the process that I talked about, it will come to you. I just want to leave you with one final thing, um, and that's this. The, sometimes the notion of power and mastery is seen as, as something a little bit ugly or selfish. It's as if being ambitious and taking this path, you're only thinking about yourself. It's like it's egocentric. And in fact, I think it's the opposite. And here's why I think it's actually the opposite. In, na in, in nature, we have made a recent discovery which is biodiversity. And, and what that means is 
an ecosystem that is diverse, that have as many different species as possible, is a much more resilient ecosystem. It can withstand any kind of traumas in, in the climate changes, etc. What makes an ecosystem have this diversity is through natural selection, through mutations. In, in an animal's genetic code, there suddenly appears a mutation that in some way enhances its ability to survive. That mutation is then passed through the population. It leads to a, a slight alteration in the species, which can even lead to a completely new species, which now has a new niche that it can live in this ecosystem. And so this system feeds itself more and more and more. We humans are biological, but we also are cultural. We've created culture, which means we literally can pass down the knowledge from one generation to the next and speed up this process of evolution, which can take millions of years into the span of hundreds of years. And in culture, the equivalent of a mutation is, the, is your uniqueness. That is what drives the diversity of a culture, a culture that is diverse, that has thousands, millions of voices of people men, women, every different ethnicity, feeding the system with their own unique contributions is an ecosystem that is much more resilient. That is why we celebrate a period like the Renaissance, because it was so diverse, because there were so many different kinds of Leonardo da Vinci's. And you have the, the good fortune of finally living in a world where there are no more barriers, where power and mastery is no longer the domain of just white men, where you have access to the kind of information that a da Vinci could, could dream of, and you live in a world with incredible problems that we are facing. And so it's almost your responsibility to become a master and to bring out that uniqueness and contribute. The most selfish people in the world are those who merely consume what other people have created in the past and don't contribute anything. So that's sort of my ultimate message to you all, and that's the end of my talk. Rob Morgan is an internationally touring bassist on a journey to discover what it means to live a curious life. At thecuriouspod.com, you'll find an archive of conversations recorded all over the world, a map of recording locations, a weekly newsletter, and official podcast merchandise. Rob is recording a daily podcast where he's sharing insights into the creative journey and the secrets to living a curious life that he's discovered from over a decade of traveling the world with music. We here at Curious Endeavors have told him this is probably a mistake and he's in Egypt to attempt it, but he won't budge, so that's where we're currently at. We hope you'll enjoy.